Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons and coming up a little later in this week's episode, we'll be hearing from James Harrison, the local democracy reporter for Northumberland in the North East, talking about the big political issues in his patch. But the main topic of discussion is the only show in town, really, if you're interested in Northern politics at the moment, namely the long-awaited publication of the Integrated Rail Plan, setting out the government's vision for major railway schemes in the North and Midlands. In short, it was telling us whether the Prime Minister would be keeping his promises to deliver HS2 in full, all the way to Manchester and Leeds from London, and a new intercity line across the Pennines. And despite Reach titles teaming up this week to urge Boris Johnson to live up to the pledges he made to Northern voters, there's a very real sense today that he has failed to do that. HS2's Eastern Leg, which originally was due to go from Birmingham up to Leeds and Sheffield via the East Midlands, will now go into Nottingham and Derby, but no further. And there was more bad news on Northern Powerhouse Rail between Leeds and Manchester, which Boris Johnson promised to deliver in his early days as Prime Minister. Rather than an entire new line, the scheme will instead be merged with the existing Transpennine route via Huddersfield, meaning the unified call for Bradford to get a high-speed rail station will not be met. But there will be 40 miles of new high-speed line between Warrington, Manchester and Standage in West Yorkshire, with fully electrified lines onto York and Liverpool in either direction, meaning Manchester to Leeds journeys will now take just 33 minutes. And as a silver lining to Bradford, the Leeds-Bradford line will be electrified and upgraded, bringing journey times down to 12 minutes. But there was no mention of electrification of the line between Hull and Selby or the reopening of the Leamside line serving the North East. So is this a plant that will fire up the economies of the North and Midlands, as Grant Shapps puts it, or, as Shadow Transport Secretary Jim McMahon describes it, a great train robbery? Let's talk to Jen Williams, who we spoke to last week ahead of our campaign. Afternoon, Jen. Hello, how are you? Good. Yeah, not too bad. So you have been pouring, like me, pouring over the integrated rail plan, which is a it's a pretty hefty document, isn't it? More than 100 pages of dense railway maps and tables and paragraphs about uh, quite technical stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot to unpick from it, as well as Grant Shapps' statement in the Commons. Obviously, the details are still seeping out and people are making sense of it as we talk now. But what's your sense of who are the winners and losers in the North and sort of in your patch in the Northwest? So I think Manchester comes out as the winner in this. And I, I think probably politically they're very aware of that here, that there is some stuff in there for Manchester. There is a new high-speed link coming in from the West. There is a further high-speed link going out towards Yorkshire. And I mean, in comparison to, to places like Yorkshire that have seen several different things that have been mooted just kind of gone or downgraded, clearly Manchester, in relative terms, has not come out of it too badly. There were certainly things just from a Manchester perspective that they wanted in there that are not there. So they wanted an underground station at Piccadilly for a number of reasons, not least that if you do a kind of surface HS2 NPR station in the centre of Manchester, you just take up loads of regeneration land. There were also some concerns that if you don't do it that way, 
it's not entirely clear how you get the line out of Manchester City Centre. There's some worries that maybe you kind of have to stick that up on some kind of viaduct, but nobody is really very sure about that. So they're not happy about that, and I imagine they'll continue to make the case for it. There's also nothing in the plan on the Castlefield Corridor, which obviously is the big kind of capacity bottleneck for the whole of the North, really, that's in the centre of Manchester. Someone was saying to me earlier on that it's not just this government or the last government or even the government before that that's been looking at Castlefield. Apparently it goes back to the last Labour government. There were people looking at, you know, task forces, looking at what you do about the Castlefield Corridor. All the plan says on that is, oh, we've got a task force and we're looking at it. But actually, that is a capacity problem that is going to have to be sorted out if you're starting to add extra services in along new lines and along Transpennine and so on and so forth. So from the Manchester point of view, those are kind of two big things that are not in there. Plus, obviously, they wanted to see the full version of the high-speed rail links that would have gone through all the way to Leeds by Bradford. Yeah, the headline figure was £96 billion that the government was spending in this plan. Obviously, just under half of that we already know, knew about because that was the HS2 from uh, London up into the Midlands. And um, when you get into the numbers, it looks quite bad, really, for the North. Obviously, what Transport for the North were asking for was in the region of £40 billion for their Northern Powerhouse Rail vision. Obviously, Transport for North was the body specifically set up to say this is what the North needs for transport. From the IRP document itself, it looks like what the government has committed to is £17 billion, so under under half of that £40 billion figure, plus a further £5 billion to upgrade the Transpennine route. And Boris Johnson's justification for that was basically, if you, there's no need to build two different lines across the Pennines because that's just doing the same job twice, essentially. You might as well invest more money in what's there already, and that will bring about journey time benefits, 33 minutes between Leeds and Manchester, and it will do it quicker, but without spending so much money. But I think there's going to be a lot of people, well, there already are a lot of people saying, pointing out that, you know, Bradford's going to miss out as as a result of this. There's a lot of downsides to what, what they're proposing, isn't there? Yeah, there's a couple of points. There's the political side to it in that we've been promised an upgrade to the Transpennine route over and over again. And we have also been promised a new line for Manchester's Leeds over and over again. So, you know, fundamentally, both of those things had been promised. So now the government is saying like, oh, well, it doesn't make sense to do both. I think the second thing, you know, I think you and I were talking before we started this podcast that neither of us are kind of rail engineer experts. But fundamentally, there's a question around capacity. A high speed rail line is designed for those kind of like big, fast, speedy services that don't stop at very many places. And if you take that traffic off a line like the Transpennine line, then the Transpennine line is kind of able to sort of take those kind of stopping services and so on and local routes. So there's a capacity question. The government is saying that it's going to double capacity between Manchester and Leeds by doing this. I don't know how they've worked that out. And there was a rail expert on Radio 4 earlier on saying he doesn't know how they've worked that out. And I think he described it as a fiction. So as was always the case with a lot of this stuff, actually the argument was as much about capacity as it was about speed, if not more so. So I think that capacity question about Manchester to Leeds is still slightly open. I think I don't I, I kind of I don't know whether you've managed to do any more kind of digging around on this than than me. No, I mean I, I was searching through the document and searched for the word capacity, and it crops up about 128 times throughout the uh, multiple pages of the report. But nowhere in there did I, I see much of an explanation as to 
how exactly capacity is going to be increased. And like you say, the point of having a new line is that it means that fast trains aren't trying to overtake slow trains and getting stuck behind them. So that's how it frees up capacity. And also, I notice a lot of the graphs and maps that the government were using to say why there is more capacity were based on the introduction of the Western line of HS2, which we already knew was happening. That was going to be happening anyway. So I think that they've definitely got some work to do on explaining to people where this extra capacity is going to come from. I think that might form a key part of the questioning of the government in the days and weeks to come on this because I mean the journey times sound impressive on paper don't they and York to Manchester is now 55 minutes whereas it was 85 minutes and Newcastle to Birmingham is that journey time has been slashed as well but it's all very well trains going quickly if they're not reliable and you know they're breaking down all the time that's that's no good for anyone yeah I mean I think the north's argument on this is that if you're going to do it then if it is this kind of once in a century rail upgrade, then do it properly. And it is being very, very heavily marketed, this plan. And I think Grant Chaps did a pretty good job, actually, of promoting it in the House of Commons. It was a pretty good performance. But, you know, the devil's always in the detail, isn't it? And actually, yeah, you might be shaving four minutes off this journey or you might be making this bit a bit faster. But actually, if you're going to do it, then do it right. And I think that's there's going to be a press conference from Northern Mayors later on this afternoon. And I, I imagine that's the argument that they will be making. I mean, there'll be more proper fury from other parts of the North than in Manchester, I'm sure. And I think it's probably just worth mentioning that Liverpool is worth keeping an eye on because I'm struggling to really see exactly what it is that Liverpool get out of this either. I think there'll be a lot of focus on Yorkshire today. But actually, I imagine Steve Rotherham is not going to be a particularly happy bunny either. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it was telling that Keir Starmer, uh, when he was deciding where he was going to base himself today, went to Bradford to where the high-speed rail station would have been if it was St James's Market in Bradford City Centre to speak to the council leader there and the West Yorkshire Mayor, Tracy Brabin. And actually, like listening to the reaction in the Commons, the two two of the more interesting responses were from Yorkshire Conservatives, so Robbie Moore, Keithley, Conservative, said it was, uh, he was bitterly disappointed that Radford wasn't getting the connections it needed. And uh, Kevin Hollenrake, the North Yorkshire Conservative, who is uh, a pretty loyal guy to the government, and he even he was quite scathing about the missed opportunity and the economic impact that this is going to have. So it's not just the usual suspects, Labour MPs and, you know, Labour Northern Metro mayors who were having a problem with this. I mean, talking about Leeds, it's uh, interesting. I, I live in Leeds and one of the silver linings that the city got was, well, HS2 is not coming immediately, but we're going to do a £100 million study to look at how that might happen in the future. And we're going to give you £200 million to help you with your long-awaited mass transit system. Obviously, Leeds being one of the biggest cities in Europe that doesn't have its own fast transit system. I'm not convinced that will be seen as enough of a consolation to lead, which has spent a huge amount of time and money and political capital developing its plans for the city centre and how it would be regenerated with an HS2 station. And obviously the the mass transit system for Leeds, there have been so many attempts to get that over the line. So I think people will be quite sceptical about having a, a few extra million thrown at it, whether that will actually do the job. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the party politics of it, I mean, obviously there are some people coming out saying, you know, it's a good thing. In South Yorkshire, I saw that Miriam Cates, the MP for 
Peniston and Stocksbridge is very happy that the railway line between Herpatch and Sheffield is being restored so it'd be easier to get into Sheffield. And I guess that's the point, isn't it, that there will be a lot of areas who will see local lines restored or made better who will be happy and those projects can be done quickly you know, maybe in time for the next election. So there's a lot of what the government, I guess, is counting on is that the political upsides of this in key constituencies will outweigh the sense that there's been a betrayal of the North. Yeah, I mean, I had the feeling before this that there was a strategy, it was a political strategy as much as a transport strategy to kind of rope in smaller projects that were going to please those constituencies or some of those constituencies or some communities in the Midlands in the North by giving them sort of stronger, more localised links that are then quicker wins. And I think the government has been relatively open about, I mean, you can see it in the intro from... I think from either from Boris Johnson or Grand Chaps or both in the intro to the IRP that they talk about, you know, the needs to also do those more localised links at the same time. And yet, you know, this plan, they'll mention Leeds mass transit, but then they don't include beaching reopenings largely. I think they've got some some beaching reopenings, but but the rest of them I think are meant to come further down the line in some other plan. They're not sorting out the kind of central Manchester Castlefield corridor capacity problems. And it's like it feels as though they've kind of picked and choosed in order to come up with something that is kind of politically sweet enough to just just about get over the line with the people that they need to do so with if that makes sense like if you're gonna do it i don't understand why everything isn't in it yeah and everything isn't in it i think the other thing as well that you get used to covering this stuff in the north of england and I, I don't know how many people how many journalists are listening down in london and I, I don't know what it's like if you cover transport down there but we're really used to being sold short like it's i'm really used to kind of being told oh yeah, yeah, yeah you're gonna get this and this oh actually it becomes an either or and in some cases it becomes neither so for example in this particular one there was a sense at one point that we had to choose between an underground station at piccadilly or a bradford city center station and actually in the event we're not getting either <laughs> so that kind of th- there are some sweeties in there i think for some mps but i'm not sure that it will alleviate that kind of general sense of grievance in many courses yeah a genuine sense of grievance i think and also as you say more questions and answers and hopefully we will get some answers in in the coming days jen thank you very much and i have no doubt we'll be coming back to this in future podcasts but let's now hear from northumberland and what the big political issues are there It's time again for the Northern Agenda to get out its A to Z and head to a different part of the North to find out what the big political issues are. This week we're looking at Northumberland, the historic North East County covering a patch of 5,000 kilometres and towns like Annick and Morpeth. It's described as a land of big adventures, breathtaking beauty and unlimited possibilities and for many is a great place for a getaway. And in fact, many suggested Boris Johnson was doing just that when he turned up for a visit at a local hospital in Hexham on the day Tories' lease was being debated in Parliament. But to find out what the key local talking points are, let's bring in local democracy reporter James Harrison. Welcome, James. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. You've got five things to tell us about what's going on in Northumberland. And the first one, even though it might sound like an obvious point, is it's sheer 
size and the different political splits that you'll see across across the patch. Yeah, like you say, it's it sounds an obvious one, but it really is absolutely massive. You know, it's the single biggest unitary authority area in in England, and um, you know, it it, it kind of comes with the diversity that you would ex- that you would expect from that. So, you know, if you head just out of Newcastle, got a big kind of southeast corner, which is kind of the old heavy industry part, lots of coal mining and kind of shipbuilding heritage. But then you kind of head out either west down the Tyne Valley, and that's kind of your pretty little market towns like Hexham and Corbridge and kind of your tourist tourist areas. Or equally, you head north up the coast, up the A1, to places like Annick and Bamber and Berwick, also very touristy. And then you've got this massive northwest corner, which basically sheep, really, sheep, sheep and open space. So yeah, kind of just within that, it, there's a lot of diversity in there and the, the different challenges that come um, that come from that. What can you say about Northumberland's relationship with the government? I mean, as you say, because it, it's quite a diverse area, I guess the, the way that local politicians interact with the government of the day kind of depends on, on, on where you are. Again, kind of quite quite split. A kind of big thing that comes up with Northumberland, I think, is, and it's a metaphor that you can stretch in a lot of ways, but in some ways it's it's a bit of a microcosm for the rest of the country. So historically, as I said, kind of quite a big split in it, the southeast corner, the old industrial part with a big labour heartland and kind of part of what has been called the Red Wall. When Blythe Valley went to the Tories in, 2009, in yeah, 2019, that was a really big deal for the Conservatives, making really big inroads into what had previously been considered quite a safe Labour seat. Off the back of that, there's been quite a lot of money heading heading that heading to that corner of south southeast Northumberland. So in October, the world's longest undersea cable opened between Blythe and Norway, uh, bringing in electricity. Over the summer, plans were approved for the British Vault Gigafactory to start making car car batteries. That's going to bring about 3,000 jobs to the region. It's going to be making about 300,000 batteries a year once once it's up and running. And just kind of put that into context, Nissan have got similar plans for their big car plant in Washington, which is only going to be about a third of the size, a really, really big deal for, um, for Northumberland. And the other one is the Northumberland line, or the Ashington, Blythe and Tyne line, as it was known until it was shut down the beaching cuts of the 1960s. But that was kind of put forward as one of the shovel-ready projects that Boris Johnson said he was looking for, you know, as a way of getting of kickstarting infrastructure projects. In terms of the local council that runs Northumberland, I gather it's quite fractious at the moment, and it's not as one-sided sort of party political situation as you, as you might imagine. Northumberland, you kind of a lot of people would think of it as you know, kind of lush rolling fields, national park, forests, coastline, and it I think it does have an association with a Shire Tory, you know, that kind of classic image. But actually, the the Tories are relatively new to power in Northumberland. They took over for the first time in decades in 2017. Um, sort of took over the county, took control of the county council at any rate. They were a largest party, but with no overall control. The leader at the time was a guy called Peter Jackson. He ended up being embroiled in a row with the chief executive. She ended up being suspended, but then came back and he was forced out in a vote of no confidence. And after that, uh, the current leader, Glenn Sanderson, took over. And bear in mind, this was only a few months, well, about less than a year before um, the local elections that, that were held in May. Glenn managed to take those lemons and turn it into lemonade and come out with an overall majority in, um, in May's elections a majority of just one seat it has to be said but he's possibly the most insecure 
successful leader that you can th- you can think of really because he's every other week I, I'm called by someone who's either claiming that they're ready to quit the Tory group or who's heard that someone else is ready to quit the Tory group and possibly bring the whole house of cards down. And last week, one of the Tory members did just that, citing um, social media abuse that she'd suffered, saying that she couldn't stand to be a county councillor any longer full stop. So the Tories have now lost their majority. If things aren't quite as rosy as they appear for the Conservatives, what, what's going on for the other, the other groups in Northumberland? And you can partly look at it and say the Tories have been winning because everyone else has been losing. So in some ways, Labour could really be considered to be the establishments in Northumberland before, before the Tories took over. They were the big red wall area in the southeast of the county, the most populous part of the county in which yielded the most, uh, the most council seats. So from 1989 up till 2008, Labour were in majority control of the county council. They've had a bit of a fall from grace since then, although they have rallied slightly. In 2008, the Lib Dems took over in a coalition. Labour managed to come back in between 2013 and 2017, but as the biggest as the biggest group in a coalition, not with overall control. And then since 2017, um, they've been kind of chipped away at and they, they don't they don't look like they're going to be the biggest party anytime soon, although that could, of course, change depending on how the local politics go. Another slight anomaly is the Lib Dems. As I said, the Lib Dems were in charge between 2008 and 2013. Um, they also had one of the most high-profile MPs in the region. That was Alan Beath, who was MP forever uh, for Berwick, I think. Uh, he, he was first elected in 1973, and he was MP there until 2015 when Anne-Marie Trevelyan took over. Well, he, he stepped down and she was elected to replace him as a Conservative candidate. But they've been reduced to a rump of just three councillors, which awkwardly also happens to include their former leader of the council, which uh, possibly not, not, where you want, not where you want to be, having once had the top job be relegated to the back benches. The final talking point in, in Northumberland uh, is, is an interesting one because we had Jamie Driscoll, the North of Tyne Metro Mayor, on last week and he was bemoaning the fact that you know the absence of a North East devolution deal uh, is costing the region and it meant, it's meant that they've missed out on funding that they would get for things like things like transport. And obviously there's still hopes of a devolution deal that could cover the entire region, but uh, it's uh, there, there are fears, are there not, that Northumberland could derail the whole thing? Uh, it's not just not just Northumberland. I don't think you could put everything at Northumberland's feet. You know, I said the tour, I said the the Conservative group on the county council is a bit fractious. Relations between different parts of the northeast are a little bit fractious as well, and that's nothing new. You know, I did I did pick out something from a from history book of the region I've got. Parochial rival- rivalries have always been a feature of Northumbrian politics since the Burgess of Newcastle quarrelled with the Bishop of Durham over coal exports and the ownership of the Tyne Bridge. And that was in 1416. So this is this is kind of nothing new. But yeah, you've got a situation where the government started off by saying they wanted a combined northeast mayoral authority. They tried to do that. They could only get Northumberland, Newcastle and North Tyneside to agree to it. So that's when Jamie was brought in. Um, well, elected, rather, I should say, as mayor for that kind of rump region. Since then, the government softened its stance slightly. The government has said we would accept just a Tyne and Weir devolved region. But then, obviously, Jamie said he wouldn't accept a deal that didn't include Northumberland. The fact the government also said they would accept standalone county deals complicates things slightly because County Durham have certainly indicated that's the way they would like to go. Um, and it's possible Northumberland 
might like to do the same rather than be bundled up with Tyne and Weir. And then you've also got um, the issues of just the personalities of the various leaders in charge as well. You've got the fact that the five Tyne and Weir authorities were all led by Labour. Northumberland's led by the Conservatives. Um, if you can look at County Durham as well, that's a Lib Dem, Tory, independent coalition at the moment. So yeah, lots of lots of spinning plates, lots of complicating factors. We'll be keeping a keen eye on that one. It's uh, fascinating to know that parochial rivalries uh, are not just a current thing and go back centuries. Well, James Harrison, thank you very much for telling us all about what's going on in Northumberland. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.